And now uh, for introductions, I am delighted uh, to welcome two speakers working collaboratively for our grand rounds today. Uh, Dr. Griffith is a Northwest native. She earned her medical degree at University of Washington and then completed her residency in internal medicine here at Providence St. Vincent, where she went on to serve us in her role as chief resident. We are absolutely delighted that she has stayed on as a hospitalist teaching faculty, uh, where she particularly focuses on clinical reasoning and bedside rounding. She is joined by Dr. Marianne Nadiri, who completed her medical degree at George Washington University, and then went on to do internal medicine residency at the University of Michigan Hospital Center. Dr. Nadiri worked as a clinical instructor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University, and then assistant professor at Columbia University in New York City. She came to Portland two and a half years ago, where she has joined the general medicine faculty at Providence Portland Medical Center. Uh, thanks to both of you, we are absolutely delighted to learn today. Thank you so much, Laura. Um, so I'm Dr. Griffith. I'm so excited for you all to be here with me today um, and with Dr. Nadiri for this really important topic, weight stigma, how it harms our patients and what we can do about it. Neither of us have any disclosures. So our objectives today, I'll spend some time defining weight stigma and actually highlighting how it shows up in Western culture and the general population. Then I'll hand it off to Dr. Nadiri, who's gonna highlight how weight stigma shows up in medicine and harms our patients. And then we'll both some take some time to propose ways to address weight stigma in medicine. A note on word choice, unless referring to studies, you'll find I avoid using the terms obese and overweight as they pathologize a person's body simply based on size and BMI. Instead, I choose to use neutral descriptors. Fat is a neutral descriptor, just like tall, thin, dark, or light. If you bristle at the use of the word fat, I invite you to sit with the discomfort you feel and reflect on the moral value you may have assigned to the word and the person who embodies it. So what is weight stigma? There's no one universal definition, and weight stigma can be used interchangeably with weight bias, anti-fat bias, fat phobia, and weight discrimination. One definition is the negative attitudes, beliefs, judgments, stereotypes, and discriminatory acts aimed at individuals simply because of their weight. Another is the social rejection and devaluation that accrues to those who do not comply with the prevailing social norms of adequate body weight and shape. It's important to note that internalized weight stigma can occur across the weight spectrum and affect anyone. However, external effects such as discriminatory acts and oppressive conditions like not being able to shop at many clothing stores or safely fly without buying a first class or extra seat or sit comfortably at restaurants, theaters, or doctor's office waiting rooms disproportionately affect people in objectively larger bodies. And unfortunately, the data shows that weight stigma is increasing. This data shows internalized weight stigma, but we know that in the general population, externalized anti-fat attitudes are increasing as well. The graphic to the right shows the results of the Harvard Implicit Bias Test through 2015, where you can see that greater than 70% of respondents, those pink bars, show an automatic preference for thin people over fat people. So where does weight stigma show up? A better question may be, where doesn't it show up? And unfortunately, a lot of this has to do with diet culture and beauty standards, which get unfairly lumped in with the discussion of health. So humor me while I spend a slide talking about this, because the discussion of weight and health is much more tied up in cultural attitudes and beliefs than many topics in medicine, and understanding this is important. Diet culture is a set of beliefs that values thinness, appearance, and shape above health and well-being. Individuals subjected to diet culture messages have been conditioned to believe that not only does thinness and dieting equate to health, but that the pursuit of health makes one person morally superior to another. Diet culture promotes disordered eating, which is praised in those in larger bodies. It also demonizes certain foods depending on trends, but often disproportionately important cultural foods, like telling your patient they should swap out their unhealthy tortillas, beans, and rice for quinoa. Diet culture places all responsibility and blame on individual choices. It ignores social determinants of health, health conditions, and genetics. 
and it supports the overwhelming narrative or assumption in Western culture that fatness is synonymous with poor health and lack of caring for oneself and therefore deserving of punishment and devaluation and that thinness is a virtuous representation of health and deserving of praise and promotion. And unfortunately, I think that we, we worsen this in medicine and that these views also reinforce our attitudes about our fat patients. Weight stigma is common in the workplace. This infographic is from self-reported survey data from overweight and obese employees and employers published by Eastern Kentucky University. It demonstrates that employees admittedly prefer to hire normal weight applicants over equally qualified obese applicants, and that em employers see obesity as a lifestyle disease, despite also acknowledging genetic origin. It also shows that reports of weight-based discrimination increase the larger a person is, and this is a consistent across studies. In addition to facing discrimination in hiring, preconceived notions about fat employees translates to a pay gap, especially amongst white women, with a difference in pay as much as 24% compared to their normal weight counterparts. This doesn't hold true as much for men or black men or black women, interestingly. But across studies, it's been demonstrated that overweight job applicants and employees were evaluated more negatively and had more negative employment outcomes compared to non-overweight applicants and employees. And the cultural messaging about weight and worth is being passed on to our children as well. This slide summarizes findings from studies of print media as well as TV and movies, including Disney, Nickelodeon, and Discovery Kids. And I think it's important to acknowledge that our attitudes around thinness and fatness are dangerous to our children. Studies have shown that 40 to 60% of elementary school girls are concerned about their weight or becoming fat. That's as young as age six. Up to 30 to 50% of adolescent girls report engaging in restrictive dieting, including laxative abuse, and being in a larger body increases the risk of severe dieting attempts, which in turn increases the risk of developing an eating disorder. Additionally, studies show that kids who view their bodies negatively, which media may reinforce, are less likely to engage in sports. And teachers have also been surveyed and report worse opinions and harsher treatments of fat kids. Mainstream adult entertainment media is not any better. Thin character characters are severely overrepresented. They dominate central roles and they're often the romantic interest. And interestingly, a third of women portrayed on TV are actually underweight compared to only 5% in the general population. And fat characters are severely underrepresented with only 13% of females and 24% of males being overweight or obese compared to the population where 51% of females and 59% of males are overweight or obese. And more importantly, fat characters are most often portrayed negatively with stereotypical eating behaviors and rarely the romantic interest. The misrepresentation in entertainment media may come as little surprise, although it's worth reflecting upon. However, this cartoon, which was adapted from a quote said by Anderson Cooper on live TV on CNN during the 2020 election, is a painfully accurate example of how fatness is viewed as a character flaw or moral failing. Quote, that is the president of the United States. That is the most powerful person in the world. And we see him like an obese turtle on his back, flailing in the hot sun, realizing his time is over. Given the many objectively terrible things about Donald Trump, why else would his weight end up being the target of ridicule unless people truly viewed his fatness as one other terrible thing about him? And unfortunately, this is not a, a exception to the common portrayal of fat people in the news media. In addition to the cultural messages about bodies, employment discrimination and pay gaps and villainization experienced in media, for those at the highest end of the weight spectrum, Violence and harassment are a reality as well. And I'd like to read this quote by a phenomenal fat author and podcaster based here in Portland named Aubrey Gordon before I move on. Quote, I am walking home from work when I catch a stranger's eye. She stares openly, slack jawed, looking my body up and down over and over again. Excuse me, she shouts. Are you big enough yet? I keep my head down eyes fixed on the pavement, walking swiftly, willing the moment to pass. Is everyone else seeing how fat this bitch is? Look at her. She points at me, searches the faces of passerby. I do not respond, 
nor does anyone else. I walk faster, face searing red, wishing the world away. Even in my silence, she is provoked, voice transforming itself from a shrill shout to a bare-toothed snarl. How do you let that happen? Can you even hear me? I deserve an answer. My heart beats heavy in my throat, stifling any response I might muster. With all this in mind, I'd like to ask you to consider the statement that our obese patients have worse health outcomes. And ask yourself if you think any of this pervasive, oppressive, and often traumatic weight stigma could have an impact on your fat patients' health outcomes. We know that stigma and oppression of other groups based on race, gender, socioeconomic class, communicable diseases, and things like substance use disorder, as Kate Marshall talked about a few weeks ago, has led to health inequities and worse outcomes. So it shouldn't be a stretch to consider that stigma associated with body size may have similar implications. I set out to see what has been studied about weight stigma in the literature and was quite surprised at what I found. U.S. data show that individuals who perceive that they have been dis discriminated against on the basis of weight are roughly two and a half times as likely to experience mood or anxiety disorders as those who do not. Weight stigma has also been linked with social isolation, decreased self-regulation, and binge eating disorder. In one study of dieters, 79% of weight loss program participants reported coping with weight stigma by eating more food. In another study, it was found that medical students with internalized weight stigma have higher rates of binge drinking and mental health disorders. And while it's important to understand the effects of weight stigma are not limited to people in larger bodies, as people with underweight BMIs have reported internalized weight stigma as well, these things are objectively worse for people in larger bodies. What about physical health? Across studies, it has been demonstrated that weight stigma can trigger physiological and behavioral changes linked to poor metabolic health, such as increased hypertension, CRP, A1C levels, and triglycerides. In one study, when patients were, when participants were manipulated to experience weight stigma, their eating increased, their caloric intake increased, self-regulation decreased, and their cortisol levels, which is an obesogenic hormone, spiked relative to controls. And this was particularly true among those who perceived themselves to be overweight. In another study, self-reported experiences with weight stigma predicted future weight gain and the risk of having an obese BMI. And this was compared to who's, those who don't experience weight stigma and it was independent of baseline BMI. Overall, the data on this subject suggests that the mere perception of oneself as being overweight across the BMI spectrum is associated with biological markers of poor health and weight gain. And what about mortality? Weight discrimination was studied in two national longitudinal studies utilizing surveys and interviews, the Health and Retirement Study with roughly 13,000 participants and the Midlife in the United States Study with 5,000 participants. Weight discrimination in both of these studies was associated with an increased mortality risk of 60% with hazard ratios of 1.57 and 1.59 respectively. This was not well understood, but the increased risk was not accounted for by common physical and psychological risk factors, and a similar risk profile was not seen for other forms of discrimination, such as based on race. Overall, the evidence continues to mount that weight stigma, whether it be internalized, externalized, even acts of discrimination, is associated with poor markers of health, poor health outcomes, and may even shorten life expectancy. The take home message of these slides should be that we need to have a deeper understanding of the experiences our fat patients may have had simply because of their size and truly consider how this may be affecting their health. The unfortunate reality and one of the main reasons that Dr. Nadiri and I are presenting this topic today is that physicians in the healthcare system are contributing to worsening weight stigma. And before I pass it off to Dr. Nadiri, I'd like to say one last quote from Aubrey Gordon. Quote, I was insured, I could afford my copay, but I weighed around 400 pounds and nearly every doctor I saw made it clear that bodies like mine weren't worth their time. So I simply stopped going. And with that, I'll hand it over to Dr. Nadiri. I want to start with this case. Um, this was my patient. 
her story is what made me think about how we as a medical establishment treat our patients, our fat patients. Um, she's a 33-year-old black female, has a history of prediabetes and hypertension, adherent to her medications. She had a ruin Y bariatric surgery eight years ago. Her current BMI is 34. She wants to freeze her eggs. A fertility specialist refused to consider egg retrieval, stating that pregnancy is too risky given her weight. She subsequently went at great co cost and inconvenience to herself to an out-of-network fertility specialist in another large city. I, I was a bit stunned when she told me about her experience. I did not understand what was happening to her and why I honestly, I didn't understand the reasoning of my colleagues in the fertility clinic. It made me think also about my own biases against fat patients and fatness. It made me think about how being fat and stigmatized adversely affects people's agency to pursue their goals in life. So I started educating myself and I changed the way I see, listen to, and talk to my fat patients. And I wanna share with you some of what I've learned. So how pervasive is fat bias in medicine? These are the results of a survey of overweight and obese patients. Note that physicians are only second to family members in those causing our overweight and obese patients to feel stigmatized. Dr. Griffith has pointed out some of the harms of the stigma. Maybe the harms of weight stigma are amplified because the top perpetrators of stigma are the people you usually trust, your family and your doctor. And as Dr. Griffith has just told us, the stigma increases depression, increases weight gain, and increases mortality. And I, as I will show, there's evidence that this bias of ours against our fat patients is causing us to interact with our fat patients differently and also causing us to care for our fat patients differently than we do our thin patients. And before I go on, I want to point out that various studies have shown significant anti-fat bias in ER physicians, pediatricians, PCPs, occupational and physical therapists, dietitians, nutritionists. The data shows fairly pervasive fat bias across our uh, healthcare system. This study of fat bias in healthcare looked at changes in implicit and explicit weight bias among 232 attendees at Obesity Week, which is self-described as the preeminent international conference for obesity researchers and clinicians. The study compared data from conference years 2001 and 2013. As you can see, although implicit, that is unconscious bias decreased from 2001 to 2013, the explicit bias, meaning our conscious self-aware attitudes, also called prejudice, increased in that time period. What has been happening to our bias, to our bias in medicine correlates with what has been shown to be happening in the general population explicit anti-fat bias is increasing. This is a study of anti-fat bias in medical students. Note that even at the onset of our careers, a majority of us have both implicit and explicit anti-fat bias. The important point that this study is making is that the implicit bias is similar to that against racial minorities, but the explicit conscious prejudice against fatness was worse than their explicit prejudice against racial minorities, against gays, against lesbians, and against poor people. It has been said that anti-fat bias is the last acceptable prejudice in our society. And these studies show that that acceptable prejudice, that explicit bias against fat people is not uncommon in medicine either. 
And the most important question is how is our bias affecting the care we give our patients? This was an interesting study of third and fourth year medical students that, and they were shown a virtual obese patient. And the study found that the virtual obese patient got less eye contact from her student provider, was thought less likely to be adherent, was more negatively stereotyped, and was blamed more for her symptoms. The student was also more likely to attribute the patient's symptoms to weight, to weight and less likely to recommend treatment. So not only does it adversely impact how we interact with our fat patient, our bias can also change how we treat our fat patients. More data on the difference in our treatment of our fat patients. 8,000 plus of these 11,000 women in the National Health Survey were eligible for pap smears. The overweight patients had a 3.5% lower rate of cervical cancer screening, and the obese patients had a 5.3% lower rate. Of the 3,000 plus women eligible for mammograms in the cohort, the obese patients had 5.4% less mammograms. And admittedly, there are many complex factors that contribute to decreased screening in overweight and obese patients. And in turn, the decreased screening possibly contributes to the higher mortality rates of these patients for both cervical and breast cancer. But unfortunately, we ourselves and our biases might be creating some of those barriers to screening. In one small Connecticut survey of physicians, providers admitted that they were less likely to suggest and pursue cervical cancer screening in overweight and obese patients. And beyond screening, there's evidence that we offer treatment differently to obese and overweight patients, and the ethics of this difference in treatment is increasingly being questioned. For instance, it's known that at a higher um, obesity range, at, at a higher BMI, especially in the obese range, um, there it is associated with problems with fertility. Um, but just to note that any data for weight loss actually improving fertility is purely observational. In fact, one randomized control trial in the Netherlands of weight loss intervention before fertility treatment versus no intervention showed no difference in live births and no difference in complications despite weight loss. So, but yet internationally, there continue to be BMI cutoffs ranging from 25 to 40 for fertility treatment. The justification for those cutoffs are often three, a higher pregnancy risk for the mom, complications for the baby, and cost to society. But other conditions that have a high risk for the mom, high risk for the baby, and therefore potential cost to society like diabetes, previous pregnancy complications like preeclampsia, do not have the same level of limitation placed on fertility treatment. This chart summarizes what I've covered so far. This was a review of the literature on the impact of obesity stigma on interpersonal encounters and decision-making in healthcare. So as we've discussed, fat patients are less likely to receive preventative screenings and treatments. It has also been found that we spend less time with our fat patients and we use less patient-centered language. We have less respect for, for our fat patients. And as we've discussed already, we view them as less likely to be adherent to our recommendations. This in turn makes fat patients less likely to come to appointments less likely to trust our recommendations, and then counter to everything we as healthcare pro providers are trying to achieve, more likely to engage in unhealthy behaviors. So what can we do to take better care of our fat patients? 
Um, in my learning on the topic, I came across a framework to decrease fat stigma in our individual practices and in the overall system. And the framework is called the seven A's to address weight bias in healthcare. And we're gonna go through these. The first of the seven A's is to appreciate the complexity of obesity. This list of putative causes of obesity is not from a medical source, but was compiled by Morgan Downey, an advocate against uh, anti-fat bias. But the list gives us a chance to remind ourselves that everything associated as a cause of obesity is from observational data. And some of these observations get a lot of attention. For instance, high fructose corn syrup. Number 56, low levels of physical activity. Number 71, overeating. And just to point out that these causes that get so much attention are also the causes that are assumed to be very much under the patient's control. But there are also many things on this list that are less stressed by the general public, less emphasized in healthcare and public health, and that are not under the patient's control. Like number one, agricultural policies. Number 11, built environment. Number 54, living in crime-prone areas. Number 94, weight gain-inducing medications. Number 95, working long hours. Number 103, prenatal exposure to cigarette smoke. The point being that a tendency to focus on the causes under a patient's control increases stigma, when in fact there are many, many causes not under a patient's control. A lot of the interventions for um, bias in medicine actually address this issue of complexity. And obviously it's hard to study what effect those interventions have on bias, but this was um, an interesting study. Um, it was a group of 350 participants. They weren't from healthcare. Um, they were from the general population. They were divided into three groups. The first group read vignettes of individuals with obesity attributed to controllable factors. There was a control group reading vignettes of individuals without any mention of obesity. And then the third group read vignettes of individuals with obesity attributed to uncontrollable factors. And the group with the vignettes of uncontrollable factors causing obesity had a significant decrease in bias as measured by the two scales. But whereas the group with vignettes with controllable factors had an increase in bias. So this may speak to the impact of our thoughts about how controllable a patient's obesity, how much control does a patient have over their own weight and how that impacts our bias against them. The more control we, we attribute to that weight, the more bias and stigma there is. The second of the seven A's is to, decre to decrease fat anti. The second of the seven A's to decrease fat bias is awareness of our own implicit assumptions and beliefs. And I was made aware of my own assumptions when I saw this picture of Myrna Valerio. She does not have a body that I associate with a runner, especially an ultra marathoner. As a runner myself, it made me really question what I am thinking when I see a larger black woman and what I am assuming about her activity level. Myrna Valerio is an activity advocate and blogger and an author, and her first blog post was titled, quote, this is not a blog about how to lose weight. My point is we need to ask before we assume the activity level or eating habits of our larger patients. Some of our fat patients might surprise us. Another assumption we need to be aware of is the assumption that the BMI is a universally applicable measure of health status. 
Similarly to how we, ex we need to accept the complexity of the causes of obesity, we need to accept the complexity of the data on BMI. There is growing data that BMI curves may mean different things for different patient populations. It is becoming more apparent that the BMI lacks in its ability to distinguish fat and lean body mass, and this may limit its use as a marker for health. This deficiency of the BMI may diminish its ability, for instance, to measure dangerous adiposity that occurs with age. Sarcopenic obesity, which is the loss of muscle mass without the loss of weight, is of particular concern in the elderly and is a marker for poorer health outcomes. There's also, there are also racial differences in BMI that are related to body fat distribution. For instance, the BMI thresholds for Asians for metabolic abnormalities like diabetes is lower than that of other populations. There's growing evidence that US groups, ethnic groups from those societies fit this pattern. For instance, the uh, Jocelyn Diabetes Center Asian Clinic in Boston also uses 27 as their um, threshold for obesity. And because of differences in fat and muscle dis distribution, there may be differences in the metabolic abnormalities associated with various BMI levels for our black patients. My point is that it is important to educate ourselves about the deficiencies of the BMI as a marker for health as we use it with these different patient populations and potentially label them as healthy or unhealthy. And it's important to understand the implications of treating just the BMI and emphasizing weight loss when there may be other behaviors that are better intervened upon. This is a cohort study from the Nutrition Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. And yes, mortality increased as BMI increased in this cohort. But four behaviors, eating greater than or equal to five fruits or vegetable servings per day, exercising 30 or more minutes per day, not smoking and consuming alcohol in moderation were associated across BMI with decreased mortality. And a greater benefit was seen at higher BMIs. So I've actually changed my conversation with my patients. I now focus on these four behaviors and not on weight loss. Sure, this isn't an RCT, but these interventions seem more achievable and controllable than a recommendation to lose an X number of pounds. Number three of the seven A's is really about paying attention to what's in our control when we interact with fat patients and how to make our fat patients feel more comfortable with us. And um, I took this from a layperson's article entitled, Dear Doctor, What Fat Patients Need From You. The first is consent to discuss weight. We should remember that many of our larger patients currently struggle or have struggled with issues of body image and eating disorders, just like our too thin patients with eating disorders. And so our fat patients might be similarly triggered by discussions of weight. So we should ask permission to talk about weight, just like we do with our thin patients, our too thin patients with eating disorders. And consider offering the patient to weigh without revealing the actual numerical number of the weight to them, also like we do with our too thin patients with eating disorders. Think about accessibility in your office space. Think about the waiting room, having chairs without armrests, wider aisles, have larger BP cuffs, and if possible, larger tables. We should always, we should always and also remind ourselves that the social determinants of health include discrimination, access to healthcare, 
access to employment, and the built environment, all of which we have just shown fat people are adversely affected by. As healthcare providers, we need to better understand the social determinants of health that are that affect our fat patients' well-being beyond their weight. And finally, we should reassess our approach to conversations about size and weight loss. We should be considering the language that we use that's prejudicial. The term morbid obesity is my pet peeve. We don't call anything else morbid. We call it uncontrolled. We call it advanced. We call it terminal. Those are all clinical terms, but the term morbid has a judgment to it, a non-clinical judgment to it that I think we just need to leave behind. In our approach to discussions with fat patients, we should remember that most of our obese patients know that their weight increases their health risk. They have probably struggled with their weight for most of their lives. They've probably been told many times to lose weight. They've probably tried many different ways to lose weight. Instead of starting the discussion with why they should lose weight or how they can lose weight, consider assessing first where they are in their health habits. What are they currently doing and where do they wanna be? And then partnering with them to get them there. Number four of the seven A's is a reminder to us that shaming doesn't motivate. This study of patients with whom their PCP discussed weight loss shows that feeling judged by the PCP actually decreased the likelihood of losing weight. And number five of the seven A's is to support a patient's autonomy. I um, thought that the harm reduction model in terms of its emphasis on autonomy I thought it was applicable here. I mean, I, the harm reduction model obviously is used in the treatment of substance use disorder. And um, it, um, you know, we could use this as we interact with our fat patients. Of course, we deliver non-judgmental and respectful care to all patients as we've discussed. And we also accept that all patients, all people have negative health behaviors yet each patient is different in their need and people, patients, need a spectrum of interventions. In the case of our fat patients, not every patient wants or needs weight loss medications or bariatric surgery, and that should be okay. We as providers can suggest, educate, and the patient decides. That's autonomy. We celebrate every step towards better health, not just loss of weight. That's autonomy. And regardless of the patient's success in their health or weight goals, we continue to work with the patient and we never give up on them. And number six and seven of the seven A's are to address the consequences of weight gain, educate about weight stigma, and advocate for fat patients. This is just a small study. I thought it was pretty brilliant in the way it shows a physician advocating for his fat, his or her fat patients and um, and making change. So he took all his, uh, he or she took all his uh, or her um, fat patients who had difficulty um, visualizing, visualizing the cervix in, in the usual dorsal lithotomy position and used the lateral decubitus position. And he was able to successfully visualize the cervix in 10 out of the 11 patients who had an unsuccessful pelvic exam in the usual manner. So the last part is um, addressing the consequences of weight stigma, educating about weight stigma, and advocating for our fat patients and for change. So um, consider social determinants of health when um, thinking about our fat patients and their lives and their health. Consider weight stigma, not weight, but the stigma associated with it as a possible contributor to mood disorder. 
educate our communities about weight stigma, educate our institutions and try to change their approach to the treatment of fat people, address stigma within the institution and advocate for policy changes to support better health care for our fat patients. Now I'm going to hand it back over to Dr. Griffiths, who's going to talk to us about another um, way to talk to our fat patients. Thanks, Dr. Nadiri. I hope she has you all convinced. That was great. So I'd like to introduce another concept of pursuing health without the intentional pursuit of weight loss. And one paradigm for this that I'll talk about is health at every size or haze. Before presenting evidence to support Hayes or a weight neutral approach, it's important to critically evaluate the weight normative approach to health, which is how the vast majority currently practice. Viewing health through the lens of body size or BMI and thus assuming pursuit of improved health must be done through intentional weight loss first and foremost. So first, I think as Dr. Nadiri referred to, we're using a flawed metric to assess health. The relationship with, between BMI and health is not as linear as we've been led to believe. Second, assuming a causal link between adiposity and disease is flawed. Outcomes for fat patients may not be caused by their adiposity. What about confounding factors such as weight stigma, which we just talked about, weight cycling, which I'll talk about soon, or the notion that adiposity is a result of an underlying process, not the cause of it? And consider the obesity paradox, which we don't have time to go into completely today. But the obesity paradox refers to the mounting evidence in numerous studies which have reported that obesity confers a survival advantage in certain conditions. And I would pose this question. Rather than referring to this as a paradox, why aren't we challenging our assumptions about the presumed relationship between adiposity and health? The answer, I would argue, is weight bias and stigma. Next, consider the fact that our current approach just simply isn't working. Multiple surveys demonstrate a high prevalence of weight loss attempts over the past 40 years, during which the obesity prevalence has increased approximately threefold. Notably, weight gain is highest amongst chronic dieters. And speaking of dieting, it just doesn't work. A 1999 review of the most common exercise and weight loss plans showed that participants lost on average 11 kilograms, but only 60 to 80% of those maintain this at one year. And although long-term follow-up data is meager, the data that do exist suggests that almost complete relapse, that is 95% of dieters regaining all their previously lost weight within three to five years. A 2007 study reviewed data for the allocation of Medicare funding for obesity. This review looked at studies of the long-term outcomes of calorie-restricting diets to assess whether dieting is an effective treatment for obesity. Researchers found that one-third to up to two-thirds of dieters regain more weight than they lost on their diets, and that studies likely underestimate the extent to which dieting is counterproductive because of bias. In addition, the studies did not prove consistent evidence, provide consistent evidence that dieting resulted in significant health improvements regardless of weight change. So next, consider that given the abysmal success rates of dieting, weight cycling or yo-yo dieting is actually the most common outcome for someone who embarks on an intentional weight loss journey. Weight cycling is known to contribute to weight gain and has been associated with many of the same poor, th poor health outcomes that we attribute to a high BMI. It's also associated with unhealthy weight loss practices such as vomiting, binge eating disorder, and lax laxative abuse. And it's associated with worse dietary habits and avoidance of exercise. It also increases sarcopenic obesity, which Dr. Nadiri just talked about. And in several studies, it's been associated with increased cardiovascular and all-cause mortality. In one study, an increased risk is high as 44%. Unfortunately, thus far, none of the meta-analysis of the BMI mortality relationship have accounted for the potential contributions of weight cycling. We also need to acknowledge that the focus on intentional weight loss forces our patients to engage in dieting and diet culture, and this is associated with an increased risk of developing eating disorders. 
It's widely understood by dietitians that most dieting programs promote extremely disordered behaviors that would be considered dangerous in a smaller body. This is despite the fact that only 6% of people with eating disorders are actually underweight, meaning that, as Dr. Dindieri mentioned, many of our patients in larger bodies may actually have a history of or an active eating disorder. Larger body size is both associated with eating disorders and the risk of developing an eating disorder. And seen as EDs are extremely deadly, with 26% of people with an ED attempting suicide, we're likely causing more harm than good when we give weight loss advice such as eat less and move more. I was also shocked to learn about this term diabulimia, which I'm not sure if you've heard about, but 30 to 35% of women report this habit, which is restricting insulin to lose weight. And finally, our weight normative approach, especially one that focuses solely on individual habits and behaviors without taking into consideration social determinants of health, increases weight stigma, which I hope we've proven to you is harmful in and of itself. So if not intentional weight loss for health, then what? This 2021 review set out to compare the mortality benefits of physical activity and cardiorespiratory fitness with that of intentional weight loss. This bar graph shows intentional weight loss observational studies in red and randomized controlled trials in blue, and I put a pink bar at the relative risk of one. Notably, decrease in mortality was not consistent across studies, and in fact, some studies had a relative risk greater than one. Several studies did show a reduction in mortality of 0.6 to 0.8. However, the authors proposed an important question. Can we attribute improvements in mortality to intentional weight loss, or do we need to consider that the health benefits may be due at least in part to the behavioral change that led to it. Often we tell our patients that even a small amount of weight loss will confer health benefits. However, we know that liposuction does not improve cardiometabolic risk profile, suggesting that simply removing fat is not the solution. This question can be applied to other research as well. Consider bariatric surgery outcomes. Improvements in insulin and glucose levels have been observed soon after surgery, far before weight has been dropped. Similarly, bariatric surgery patients with increased physical activity post-op are known to have better outcomes. And finally, remission in type 2 diabetes after bariatric surgery is not linearly associated with the amount of weight loss, all of which suggests weight loss itself may not be the only reason for health improvements after bariatric surgery. Next, the 2021 review went on to summarize findings related to increased physical activity and cardiorespiratory fitness and mortality. Overall, the data showed a much more consistent relative risk reduction in mortality for both. And if you look at the graph on the top left, improved cardiorespiratory fitness is not only con consistently associated with all-cause mortality reduction, but the degree of risk reduction was much more robust, with a relative risk of 0.4 to 0.7 compared to, in the intentional weight loss, 0.6 to 0.8. Finally, they also looked at the unfit versus fit phenotype, and this demonstrated that regardless of BMI, unfit phenotype was associated with increased hazard ratio for all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality, and in fact, an unfit normal BMI had a higher hazard ratio than a fit obese BMI. Overall, this, re this review supports that a better approach to health may be focusing on fitness rather than weight loss. In shifting our focus from a weight normative approach to a weight neutral approach, it's important to acknowledge weight is not a behavior. Overwhelmingly, fat patients are prescribed diet and exercise with the goal of intentional weight loss. And inev inevitably, when weight loss attempts fail, the behaviors are given up as well. We need to decouple health behaviors from intentional weight loss to see sustained improvements in these behaviors. I think it's important to note as well that weight stigma worsens these health behaviors, as we've shown, including increasing binge drinking in medical students, reduced exercise, worsened diet, and worsened um, cancer screening, as Dr. Nadiri shows. Which brings me to the health at every size approach. The Hayes approach promotes balanced eating, life-enhancing physical activity, and respect for the diversity of body shapes and sizes. It's one possible weight neutral framework we could consider. Because this is somewhat controversial and freaks out a lot of physicians, I thought I would start with the most common misconceptions I hear from people in medicine. That haze means everyone is healthy regardless of weight. 
that Hayes promotes obesity and is anti-weight loss, that Hayes means giving up on our patients' health to make them feel better about themselves. When in reality, Hayes providers acknowledge that health issues arise in people across the weight spectrum and improvement in health can be pursued across the weight spectrum. Hayes providers shift focus from controlling body size to adopting health promoting behaviors, which may or may not lead to weight changes. Hayes providers acknowledge and begin to reduce our bias toward fat patients, ultimately improving their care. I think importantly, it's, it's important to understand that health at every size is about the ability of an individual to pursue health, not a description of their current health status. And Hayes has five principles. Weight inclusivity. It challenges the belief that body size reflects personal health practices, health status, or moral character. Health enhancement. This means approaching health the same way across the weight spectrum, eating for well-being or intuitive eating, respectful care to decrease stigma and life enhancing movement. And importantly, it views health as not just the absence of disease, but the presence of quality of life. But is there data to support Hayes? A review by Bacon and Aframore of six randomized controlled trials examined Hayes versus a weight normative approach and found that Hayes resulted in significant improvements in blood pressure and lipids, health practices such as physical activity and reduced eating disorder pathology and psychological measures. And notably, none of the studies had worsening of any variables measured. In one specific randomized controlled trial, participants were assigned to a Hayes or weight loss group. They received six months of weekly intervention groups, followed by six months of monthly support groups. Then they measured outcomes at one year and two year. The Hayes group had decreased total cholesterol, LDL, triglycerides, and blood pressure, though they lost no weight. But notably, they sustained these health improvements from year one to year two. The dieting group lost a modest amount of weight and showed similar improvements at one year, but had regained the weight and had no, did not sustain improvements at two years. And attrition in the dieting group was 44% versus 8% in the Hayes group. Many of the studies for health at every size are small and benefits are modest, but given what we've presented today about the harms of stigma and the failure of our current approach, I think it's worth considering. Interest in the weight neutral approach to health is increasing, especially in nutrition and dietetics, where they work with eating disorder patients and in the public health sphere with the, where this is being seen as a social justice issue. But I think the rest of the healthcare industry is lagging behind. The seven A's and the health at every size approach are two frameworks to consider, but rather than using a specific framework, the most important message we hope you take away from today's talk is that weight stigma is pervasive in society and medicine. It's harmful to our patients. We need to acknowledge our contribution to this harm and we need to aim to do better. Thank you. These are some amazing books that you guys should consider reading if you wanna learn more. Wow, thank you so very much, Drs. Griffith and Adiri, for an outstanding presentation. We do have some live audience here with us and I'll invite questions, but I'll begin um, online and um, perhaps best encapsulated with this uh, comment. Excellent talk and presentation. This should be part of our DEI training. I know. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much for having this important stigmatized topic. I learned so much and have work to do myself to reframe my thinking. So thanks for your comments and questions online. Um, perhaps um, I'll, I'll begin with one or two questions we have here, but please feel free to raise your hand in the room as well. Uh, this question specifically calls out, um, Dr., can Dr. Griffith comment on her opinion regarding the disease model of obesity? Um, can there be a both and in working to eliminate stigma while also addressing the data about how adiposity harms health. This question emerged before your second portion of the talk, but you may still have comments. Okay, should I come over here? Yeah, sure. That's a great question, and truthfully one that I still struggle with in medicine. 
Um, but I think like Dr. Leitra mentioned in the second part of my talk, I really brought up the fact that what we're seeing is associations. There's flaws in the research where we need to reconsider what we're assuming as causality. But more importantly, I think that a weight neutral approach, the seven A's and Hayes, aren't abandoning our patients' health or health improvements. It's just simply moving the target. And I think the evidence that we've shown is that it's unlikely that this patient that comes to you with this adiposity is going to be able to have a sustained reduction in that. So why not just treat the person that's in front of you in ways that we know will improve their health? I'm curious as to what either one of you would do if you were the emperor of healthcare regarding Medicare and other healthcare systems and how you would advocate changes in those healthcare systems for the people that want to be healthy at every size. Thanks for the softball. <laughs> Dr. Nadiri, how would you change the healthcare system? Um I would I would definitely change that HCC code that makes you say that every every condition is worsened by the patient's morbid obesity. Um, I I really do think that we need to be given time and credit for talking to our patients about health habits and not just about their weight. And so I guess that's my problem with the HCC codes that focus on BMI. And so, yeah, I focused on the HCC codes, but there's no, a lot I more think that could be done. I think that's a great answer, but I also think that, um, you know, this ties in with public health messaging that constantly is, is lumping together health behaviors with weight loss efforts and pointing the finger at people of certain body sizes. And so ad adjusting our public health messaging as well would be important, although that's not specific to what Medicare can do. This, this was fabulous, um, extremely helpful, and it's, it's making me think um, about data around osteoarthritis, specifically mm. like knee OA, and um, and just you know, do we actually know? You know, like I just had a patient yesterday who severe depression. Her BMI is only 32, but she has spent her whole life trying to be smaller. And um, you know, and finally, I gave her a referral to the comprehensive weight management yesterday, but reminding her, I actually don't care if you ever lose weight. You run two miles a day, you eat healthy. The only possible complication you have is this uh, NEOA. And then I wonder, do I even know? Yeah. Um, and the other part of the question is then, have you spoken to our orthopedic colleagues? Can I start with this one? Okay, so first of all, I think you started questioning your own bias right away, which is, is her OA from her BMI of 32, which arguably has probably been up and down through the years, is it related to her running two miles a day? And how would we judge the OA if we attributed it to running versus body size? So I think there is data that, that shows that OA does increase with body size, but there's also data that it increases with severe physical activity like long distance running. And how do we judge each of those? So, and then there, you know, in terms of cutoffs, BMI cutoffs for surgeries, which thank goodness I don't think your patient falls into, um, the evidence to support that is less strong than our colleagues would uh, admit to. I'm curious to know what your suggestions would be for a scenario where we have a patient in the clinic who is fat and who is coming to us who really wants to lose weight. Hey doc, help me out. Would you recommend, I mean, since weight loss, most approaches are not really evidence-based. In fact, they do cause harm in a lot of cases. Do we plant that seed or do we support their wishes? 
I want to let Dr. Nadiri answer this one, but the first thing I want to say is that we need to have compassion for those people because of course they want to lose weight based on what we just presented. And Dr. Nadiri has some great hands-on information. Yeah, I mean, I have been trying to redirect my patients to their habits, to their activity levels. And I, I'm not saying I'm always successful with that because there is a pervasive just notion that everyone needs to lose weight and everyone needs to be a perfect, the perfect size, right? But I have been just slowly like giving this data to my patient that it's more important that you eat five vegetables a day, that you are active 30 minutes a day. Maybe you walk and you walk fast like you're late for an appointment 30 minutes a day. You know, and and maybe we not focus so much on how many pounds you're going to lose, because in the end, what's been shown to help is to change those habits and not necessarily the pounds that you're going to lose. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I do want to be respectful and acknowledge that we're just past nine o'clock. A lot of positive comments online as well as questions that we didn't get to. Uh, it sounds like a topic and conversation to be continued. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Thank you.